The Capital Weekly Podcast is supported by TASSEN, the Tribal Alliance of Sovereign Indian Nations. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Capital Weekly Podcast. I'm John Howard, and I'm joined, as always, by my, uh, with, by my colleague, Tim Foster. Hi, John. How are you? And our guest today is a uh, lobbyist, lawyer, college professor, uh, Chris McKayley. Chris, thank Hi, you. Hi, John. Hi, Tim. And you've just come out, Chris, you've just come out with uh, two case books, one on the California rulemaking process and the other on executive power. So first question, I guess, is what are case books and why are you doing them? That's a <laughs> well, question. yeah, well, case books, um, John, has historically been the method by which uh, law students uh, learn about the law and learn how to think like a lawyer, how to read and analyze the law and fact patterns and apply the law to those fact patterns by reading judicial decisions, the written uh, decisions by our intermediate and Supreme Courts at the state and federal levels. And the case books also have some explanatory material. And so I took a similar approach because nothing's really been done on either of those two areas to go into great explanation of what those processes and authorities are like. And then also examining what the courts have said and how the courts have interpreted uh, those provisions of law. How do you think like a lawyer? What does thinking like a lawyer mean? <laughs> I know that's what every law student starting out says. Well, what does it mean? But you know, at the end of the three years, believe it or not, I think you do analyze issues and uh, look at things a little bit differently. You know, the way that you... <clears throat> analyze the cases is through the IRAC analysis, IRAC, they call it in law school. I is for issue. So what's the main issue, uh, the legal issue that a court is trying to decide in this case? The R is for rule. Basically, what's the rule of law that they are setting forth? And then the big thing is the A, the analysis. And that's the thinking like a lawyer. That's, you know, analyzing a set of facts and applying the law to those facts. And then the C, of course, is the last part, the conclusion of it. But the thinking like the lawyer is how do you analyze something? How do you look at it um, and, and take different approaches? And I also found that you know, the way you, you probe, the way you ask questions, uh, the way you look at things definitely changes because you realize all the potential avenues and your mind is always thinking of what could you argue on this side and what could you argue on the other side about things? Well, you know, I always think of, uh, I always see lawyers and reporters as having maybe a closer, a closer affinity than either one would like to admit. Yeah. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Well, you know, absolutely. Lawyers, the inquisitive mind, I think, exists with both. The yeah. inquisitive mind and the, um, the, the, the wordsmithing and the importance of language. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of similarity there. And I know many reporters who've gone into the law. I know one uh, who, in fact, went to McGeorge just many years ago yeah. and um, 
had always wanted to go to law school, went to law school. After he got out of law school and passed the bar, he did not want to practice law at all. He wow. He in journalism okay. <laughs> for many years uh, as, a, as a legal reporter, just a great legal reporter. Sure. And, um, you know, I know others who uh, couldn't wait to get out of journalism and got into, <laughs> you, know, you know, started practicing law or went with firms or whatever, however that worked. But Partly was to make money. Partly was to have a more regularized schedule, you know. But yeah. but I know uh, there are natives on in both tribes there that I've talked to before. Well, certainly some of the legal reporters, like at the U.S. Supreme Court, with um, you know some of the national organizations, I think their ability to synthesize what the courts have said and then put it into, you know, layperson terms so that the average reader can understand whatever perhaps complex legal issue has been discussed or decided by the high court. You know, they can explain it to the average citizen reading or hearing their newscast about it. You know, there was a New York Times reporter uh, I met many years ago uh, covering the Unabomber trial. It was here in Sacramento. Right. Post trial. Didn't quite go to trial, but it was all the prelim was here. Yeah. And he had been a uh, an attorney, a lawyer, okay. family of lawyers, and but he always wanted to get into journalism. So he got into journalism, I think, in New Jersey. I think he worked at the Bergen County Record uh, <laughs> and then wound up working at the New York Times and covered the trial uh, for the New York Times. Just did a fabulous job. And he did it. He had a different sort of a take on it that I think a lot of the other reporters had. He, he brought something to it that the others did not. Oh, that's really, fantastic. Yeah. yeah. It was good coverage. Yeah. He, by the way, he got out of journalism and went back to law. So oh, okay. That's what he did his vacation. <laughs> his journalism. vacation as a journalist. Okay. <laughs> you know, uh, Chris, you sent me a, uh, and maybe others too, you sent an email a couple, three days ago on how the legislature might look in the new session. Right. And it was, uh, it is a collection of names of legislators who are leaving for one reason or another. Yeah. They're retiring, they're resigning, they're mm-hmm. moving on to something else, new jobs. Yep. Uh, there's an awful lot of them. So, you know, the bottom- they're calling that the great resignation. Yes. <laughs> yeah, right. right. I mean, in the Senate, um, seven are turned out this year. Seven are turned out this year. Three are running for reelection. Oh, excuse me. Three no, running for something else. Yeah. yeah, for something else. They are not running for re-election. Yeah. Six are running for re-election this November for their final four-year term, which means, of course, they'll be termed out after that one ends. Right. And ten uh, will be termed out in the next cycle in twenty twenty-four. Yep. A whole crowd. That's a mob of legislators taken together. Uh, just yeah, and barely three years. Uh, half of the entire state senate will look new. Yeah, or will be new. Yeah, is that uh, is that good? There's a subjective question, <laughs> objective attorney, but is that good? Well, you know, I, look, I've been I support term limits in concept. Um, I certainly was uh, not a fan at all of the prior iteration. You know the three measly terms, six years in the assembly and and eight in the Senate. Um, You know, I think something maybe in the neighborhood of 20 years is more appropriate, you know, uh, akin to 
at least a half a career if we assume about, you know, 40 years of, of, uh, of, of work in life. So I don't, I'm okay with it not being a permanent career with somebody serving decades in office. But I think even the current 12 is pretty short uh, relatively. And so I, you know, don't, don't like them at that level. And I think that some turnover is appropriate, but really, come on, 20 of the 40 senators in three years are going to be replaced. Uh, that's problematic to me. So, well, you know, the, um, the, one of the arguments against term limits was that if you have a revolving door for legislators, more and more, they are going to be relying on the experienced hands in the Capitol, the staff people that have been there. And, you, and most of us know many of their names and they've been there for years. They've served different masters at different committees and they've done different things, but they're people that are there that give continuity. Right. To, and so they're, the, the idea that they would be relying more on staffs and lobbyists for information if they're there a shorter time was an argument that I, I kind of bought. It seemed to me that was one reason that term limits was not a good idea. There are other reasons too, but that was one reason. And I'm willing to put up with the fiefdoms that some people had established over years. And that was certainly true when term limits was approved, but, but still it just seemed to me not a good way to go. So, I mean, at the end of the day, let the voters limit their terms. If they don't want them, you know, they can vote for somebody else. Same to me. But. Well, and I also think, John, that considering what's happened this year, as we know, uh, part of that, uh, the great resignation, which I also deem those who are not running for re-election, that also uh, was impacted dramatically by the Citizens Redistricting Commission and how the lines were drawn this year, where there were a number of legislators on both the Democrat in particular and Republican sides where they were drawn into the same district. And there are a number of legislators who chose to run for a different office or move to another district to run and some opted uh, not to run against a colleague uh, and try something else, perhaps a local office or uh, not even run uh, for any other office. And so that happens, as you know, after each decennial census. So every 10 years, we have a redrawing of the maps that could also impact uh, a legislator's uh, service in the California legislature. So you have both the ability for the voters to vote somebody out of office that they're unhappy with, but you also have the impact, again, as we have seen this year uh, on redistricting. You go over to the Capitol, obviously, quite a bit. Yeah. Um, the rules have changed lately about how we access the Capitol. Uh, do we mask or not mask when we go in? What's open? What's not open? So what's, if, could you describe a, a day in your lobbying life in terms of the Capitol, what you have to do? Do you have to mask or not? Do you go to the same hearing rooms you used to? Do you go to the new swing space? which is really pretty elaborate office building. Uh, we'll talk about the elevators later there. But, um, so how's it work for you? You got to get people, you have to see people mano a mano, I would think would be the best way to do your job. So how's that work out? Well, I definitely prefer it myself, which is why I've been uh, doing it since they first reopened the Capitol and 
April of 2022. I'm uh, sorry, of April of 2020. How quickly we forget. Uh, by the way, as a quick aside, um, the National Institute of, of Lobbyists, <clears throat> which is sort of the equivalent of IGA, the Institute of Governmental Advocates here in Sacramento for state capital advocates. I always say that too. Everybody's got an organization, even the lobbyists. Um, But I raise it only to say that to this day, they just submitted, they got signatures of 250 lobbying firms and other associations to demand that the U.S. Capitol open up. So they haven't even been opened. The California Capitol uh, opened about a month after it closed on March the 16th of 2020. I remember that day, Monday, um, which was very uh, interesting, where the legislature, you know, passed two bills, the first and only time uh, Prop 5472-hour in print rule for a bill was waived due to a gubernatorial proclamation, and they gave the governor, you know, a billion-dollar-plus spending authority, and off they went for what was supposed to be three weeks, and then it turned into six weeks, and then they started to resume hearings, uh, which were open to the public. Of course, you had to be uh, masked at all times. You had to sit and be socially distanced, one person in the elevator. You had to be escorted everywhere in the Capitol uh, by a sergeant, uh, either the assembly or Senate side, uh, depending on what floor session or committee hearing you were going to. So last June 15th, June 15th of 2021, they reopened the Capitol without the escorts. You still had a health check at the time where they would uh, take your temperature and go through security, of course, but you weren't required to actually have an escort. We could go anywhere. Now, the other interesting thing is, is that we have three buildings, as you guys know, with the swing space at 1021 O Street, Uh, just opening to the public January 3rd, but we've always had the old section of the Capitol connected to the annex that's closing down today to hearings and other things. And then the LOB, the Legislative Office Building at 1020 N Street. Despite the Capitol, the old section and the annex, now the old annex, if you will, opening last June 15th, The LOB didn't open until December the 1st. And that's where most of the assembly committees are. Yeah. uh, A number of the Senate committees and then the Senate and Assembly Republican caucus staffs, both their policy and fiscal folks. So that building just opened on December 1st. And then, of course, in November and December, the legislators and their staff moved over to the swing space. And it opened on January 3rd very few people showing up. Just last week, John, both the Assembly and Senate dropped the masking requirement. Although there are signs and other things that make it very clear that masks are still strongly recommended but not required, socially distancing is still required. So they limit the number of people in the elevator, the number of people in the committee hearing Mm -hmm. rooms, They actually mark off the chairs where you can sit (laughs) uh, in those hearing rooms in the floor 
And just today, today or the last, actually yesterday, excuse me, in the Senate and uh, Monday in the assembly were the last hearings in those big hearing rooms in the annex, 4202, the UNRU, the Jess Marvin UNRU um, hearing room. And then across the hallway, 4203 in the Senate, the John Burton hearing room. Those are now closed. And so... Uh, this is a long-winded answer to your question. Uh, the hearings are just beginning on Thursday in the swing space. Now, the assembly, you may recall, they have two hearing rooms on the first floor of the old section and three hearing rooms on the fourth floor of the old section. That's where most of the assembly committee hearings will continue for the next four years. On the Senate side, they get three of the four hearing rooms at the swing space. So most of their hearings will occur there, except some of the bigger ones, like the Governmental Organization Committee and the Transportation Committee. At this point, they're going to continue to meet on the floor in the chambers of the Senate. Is the legislative office building, is that going to be changed or modified or... No, it's not. Uh, that'll continue and it is continuing. Um, so all those assembly committees that have long been there, they continue. And one little interesting footnote, Assemblyman Jim Wood, who's the chair of the Assembly Health Committee, yeah. wanted to stay with his committee staff uh, and they did not have a sufficient room uh, the only two assembly committees that are in the swing space are the budget committee and the appropriations committees. Those are in the same office as, as their chairs. So Dr. Wood, you know, he's a dentist by training. Uh, Dr. Wood is the only legislator in the LOB. So he's actually in the same office as his health committee, or vice versa, if you will. Uh, if I was in the committee, I wouldn't want my boss in the office every day. I thought the committees and the, the staffs in the LOB had some distance between them and their and their bosses. Maybe maybe not. That's how I looked at it. Some, but, of, the, some but, of them have definitely enjoy, enjoyed that, but I know that Dr. Wood and the health committee consultants appreciate that um, ability to consult on on bills and issues. So they've obviously preferred it. Two things about the LOB, really. One of them is I think they still have the secret DMV office over there that for years reporters used to use. It was in the basement of the, of the Capitol. Nobody, the public didn't know about it, but the DMV had an office for the, for the uh, convenience of legislators. And of course the reporters glommed onto it and went to that office. No waiting, no lines. It was great. The second thing are the bathrooms. The LOB has Fabulous bathrooms. <laughs> they well, so do the new. So does the new swing space, John. I have to say, they're uh, much nicer than the old annex. You know, so I have a. This is maybe a little far afield, but uh, there is a protest movement against the new construction. Now, uh, there there's actually uh, two lawsuits, Tim. So, oh, okay. So, so my take on this is that this is pretty much a done deal and the annex is coming down and the new construction is going up and that the train is on the tracks and nothing is gonna change that. That's the way it seems to me. Uh, can you speak to that? I mean, uh, I know that there is, I won't call it vigorous opposition because I've, I've never actually seen an actual person <laughs> protesting, but I know that it's quite, uh, there's quite a bit of uh, fluff on Twitter about this, but 
So what is the status of this? Are we, is there any chance that this project is going to stop or, or is, it, is it too late? Honestly, I have a hard time thinking it will be stopped, but there are some people who believe that the uh, annex should be remodeled. But you know, it's not, uh, there are many violations in that building of the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA. There's asbestos that drops from the ceiling you know, this year, 2022, it actually marks 70 years. Uh, and I think 70 years is long enough. It's, it needs to come down. Uh, it's not really conducive to, um, you know, the work of the legislature. They need more space. Uh, they need better and improved space. They need more meeting rooms. If you look at the swing space now, every floor having meeting rooms where legislators and their staff can meet with constituents and interest groups because the offices are smaller, just like in the state capitol. We've all been in some of those very tiny offices, standing room only, right? Uh, the hearing need, rooms need to be modernized. They need better you know, restroom facilities, you know, pantries, um, there's only one new mother room. It's in the old section of the Capitol. You know, every room or every floor at the swing space has a new mother's room, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it's just after 70 years, that building needs to be, it needs to come down and be rebuilt. Absolutely. And I have to say that it is one of the weirdest buildings I've ever been in to actually navigate. I mean, I went to UC Davis and I navigated what they refer to as the Death Star, which was the worst building I've ever been in, <laughs> in my life. Uh, anyone who went to UC Davis and ever had to go to the administrative office. I did, yes. Exactly what I'm talking about. It's like, it was the most confusing, poorly designed, as far, not the external, but the internal part. I could never figure out what was going, nor could any of my uh, fellow students. But uh, the the annex is very strange in that you're walking along and all of a sudden you were on the third floor and now you're on the second floor and you never changed, you never went upstairs or anything. And I know that that's uh, because of, of the nature of the building. It is a confusing building to get around in. And even as a person who loves historic preservation, I can really see the argument for modernizing and removing the annex because it is very confusing and it did not seem like it was particularly well designed when it was built, but that's one person. Yeah. Opinion. But as you also know, that's, you know, that's where legislator offices are and all of that. The old section of the Capitol, the ornate hearing rooms where the legislative leaders are, those, that area remains, that won't be touched in this. We're only talking about, the offices of legislators and some of the larger hearing rooms uh, to modernize that, give everyone, you know, a similar sized office that have windows to the world. I mean, you know, every office at the swing space, they all have, you know, glass windows. Everyone has a window. Every office does. As you well know, in the Capitol Annex, there are quite a few offices that are strictly internal that have no windows to the outside world. I mean, it's just terrible. You know? you mentioned, uh, Chris, you mentioned uh, a couple of lawsuits involving the remodeling. Uh, do you know if those, uh, if those suits are CEQA 
uh, base sequel linked. We just went through this. Oh issue. yes, one of them. One of them is, and one of them, it's often mischaracterized as a sequel exemption, which it's not. What the legislature gave to the capital annex project is what we call expedited judicial review. Uh-oh. So they have to go through an EIR, an environmental impact report, and all of the CEQA statutory requirements. The only issue is, is that when they're sued over that EIR, uh, the courts in California have to consider and rule on that lawsuit in an expedited basis in less than a year. And so that's similar to what they've done for some other major projects, including, you know, the King's Arena where they play in downtown Sacramento. So it's not an exemption. They have to comply with CEQA, but it's just requiring the courts to get through that court case on an expedited basis. So if it has to be within a a year, do you know when those will be decided? Uh, Later this year, they will be. But in the meantime, the construction... uh, well, the pre-construction work continues. You know, the annex is not going to come down anytime soon. They're in the process right now of moving some of the, uh, you know, larger trees uh, to other places in the park. They're not getting rid of any of them. They're just moving them, their location. And they're getting uh, a lot of the pre-work set up, including, for example, Uh, power sources outside of the Capitol building in order to fully power the old section of the Capitol and other things. And so it'll be later this year um, at the earliest where they'll actually, you know, drop the current annex and then rebuild it. They'll also be starting uh, later this year, the visitor center, and the visitor center, they, the public will actually enter on the west side near the 10th Street side of the Capitol. And so, you know, facing that side of Capitol Mall looking west. So you'll actually go down uh, into the basement directly instead of having to go in the doors on the L Street or N Street sides of the Capitol and then go down the stairs. You'll actually enter from uh, the west side and into that area and you can start your tour, et cetera, there. Now, do you remember when they started the, the security processes there? Because I- It was after 20, uh, it was after uh, 9-11. I was gonna say, I remember just walking right into the Capitol. Oh, when I first started lobbying and up until 9-11, of course you went in and out with no security or uh, anything. The only they had a um, they had the metal detectors before you went into the galleries. That's where they had them, and it was after nine eleven that they, you know, installed all of that, which I always found strange because you could walk into the Capitol to any legislative office with absolutely no security, no no uh, metal detector or anything. They only did it in the galleries before you could go in. It's <laughs> crazy. almost surprising that that didn't happen after uh, the damn white assassinations that you would think that would have been enough to spur that. Yeah. But you're right. I, I, I remember just walking in and out of the Capitol and it was very casual. So 
I remember yeah. one time a Greenpeace went in, groups of people from, I think it was Greenpeace, with repelling equipment, uh, ropes. Wow. Runners. They went in the Capitol, got up to the top, which I've always wanted to do, never got up there myself to see a look around there, and they hung their banner. Oh, the, my goodness. I don't know how long that lasted, but... Uh, but wow. That uh, was something else. Um, yeah. Just one last question on those lawsuits. Uh, the state or the legislature and the governor, I guess, uh, intervened or overturned, if that's the word, the Berkeley versus Save Our ne Neighborhoods case. Can the, it, it, that's a usurpation of legal authority. Can they do that? I guess not. So can they do that if the, if the decisions in these court suits don't play out to the satisfaction of the governor and legislature, can they, over, can they contravene that decision? Yes, and that's what they did. They did two things in that budget trailer bill that was adopted earlier this week. They did modify the CEQA statute and what the definition of a project is and consideration of uh, enrollment. But they also specifically have language that basically says that any court decision contrary to this is uh, vacated. And the legislature is able to do that because they make the laws. The judicial branch interprets the laws, what's on the books. But if the legislature, and as with the federal government and the other 49 states, if they're unhappy with a judicial decision, uh, they can change the law. And obviously, that's what they've had to do is change the law. Okay, great. Uh, Chris McKaylee, thank you so much. And as a cautious, prudent lawyer, you want nothing to do with our next feature, which is who had the worst week in California politics? The worst week. Worst week. Worst week. Tim Foster, I think one of the possibility, a good possibility, maybe the best possibility is Randy Waltz, now the former sheriff of Del Norte County, which is in far northern California on the coast, spectacularly beautiful, largely rural. Uh, used to have great seafood. Del uh, Crescent City was known for its seafood. Maybe it still does. He resigned on Monday, announced his resignation. He had been charged the week before with perjury and voter fraud in relation to his residence address up there in uh, Del Norte. Sheriffs are elected. He was going to run for re-election. That's a no-no if you're not at a valid address. He ran into a problem there. He also took a took over a sheriff's department that had been rife with uh, dissension and problems and multiple um, departures and resignations earlier before he took over. He was, I think, uh, seen as a way of remedying that. Tim, what do you think? I think he is the clear choice for the worst week. And uh, as always, I should note that he says he is innocent and, and that once this is fully investigated, he will be exonerated of all charges of impropriety. And also, I think one of the weirdest parts about this is that his uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, John, but I think his place of residence is a mobile home. And so that may be where some of this uh, confusion comes from. But he's he's living in a mobile home. Is that correct? Yeah, well, it was a temporary address is the way the documents up there described it. Uh, the story was reported uh, in the uh, Sacramento Bee. They did a lengthy setup piece for this a few months ago. LA Times reported the Del Norte Triplicate, which is a good paper, uh, also reported this what's going on up there. The address was the way they describe a recreational or temporary address. Apparently he had been at least for a while living in an RV 
he had some scrapes. Waltz had some issues earlier with employment and hiring decisions. I believe there's still a lawsuit that he has filed against a potentially a previous potential employer uh, whom he accused of um, accepting him for a job and then uh, unilaterally withdrawing the offer. I don't know how that's going to play out or how it has played out. He's from the Central Valley. He'd been in Fresno as a DA's investigator, and he'd been a sheriff's investigator down, I believe, in Madera. So he's got a long uh, law enforcement background. Uh, this stumble is sort of pretty surprising, and it raises questions about Del Norte politics in general, which seemed pretty ferocious and with a great deal of infighting. Yeah, I, I mean, well, little uh, little Del Norte, you've taken the gold this week. You know, you think if you're a law enforcement officer, too, you ought to know enough about the election laws uh, as they pertain to residency and longevity and the address. And I'm always skeptical of these. You know, in Congress, you can live whatever you want. You can live in San Isidro and represent the, I don't know, the 52nd district or something. I mean, it doesn't really, it, I don't know, it just doesn't compute. But in the state, uh, you have to live in the district uh, that you want to represent. And I assume that's true. It must be true with local, office, at least in Del Norte, with local offices as well. So whenever I hear these charges about a residence or address snafu, I mean, it always raises my suspicions. But at the end of the day, democracy is democracy. And you play by the rules if you want to run for a public office. And the DA up there, um, this uh, Catherine Mix, is saying he did not play by the rules. He's alleging that. Well, and uh, the fact that he's already stepped down, even if he is ultimately exonerated, I think he still had a pretty crummy week being that he had to give up his office. Yes, absolutely. Uh, oh, yeah. Also, he had a good line. He had to step down because he uh, he pleaded. He, he says, I'm innocent of these. I'm stepping down because I'm a law enforcement guy and I don't want these kinds of charges uh, clouding my my role, my tenure up here. I thought that was a pretty good response. Yeah. He'll Next time I'm indicted, I'm going to use <laughs> uh, well, never say never john you never say never right you got it so okay well i think that right. uh, that does it for this week okay tim foster thank you so much thanks john. and um this is john howard saying we will talk to you soon and talk to you next time around take care the capital weekly podcast is produced by tim foster for open california if you enjoyed today's episode we hope you'll go onto itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a positive review Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.